as prophet, Jesus came to make God known. As priest, Jesus came to make us clean. Perhaps when you're thinking about cleaning, it's not blood that first comes to mind as the remedy of choice. Back in 1993, there was a gathering of uh, um, various uh, uh, pastors and, uh, and church leaders of a particular mainline denomination. And at this gathering, it was a highly controversial gathering in 1993, the, the Reimagining Conference in Minneapolis. The cross and atonement through Jesus' blood was... Not the most popular concept. In fact, one quote from a particular professor of a, a, um, a particular mainline denomination said, those, said this to those at the event. They said, I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff like that. Of course, in 2012, another um, church was revising their denomination's hymnal. And in a recognition of the um, work that's happened with modern hymns and uh, the effort that's gone into, um, the effort that has gone into uh, crafting um, poetry that speaks Uh, about the theological truth of the gospel and points us to Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, This particular denomination um, reached over to Keith and Kristen Getty uh, to the song, uh, In Christ Alone. Um, But as you know, uh, that is a being that it's a recent hymn, it's still copywritten. So we can't just go and change the lyrics of the hymn without seeking permission first of the ones who wrote it. The, organiza- the uh, organization that was working on rewriting, uh, or t- not rewriting, but uh, putting together the new hymnal for this church found this line and wanted to change it. We know the line is still on that cross as Jesus died. The wrath of God was satisfied. The editors of the hymnal reached out to the Gettys and said, we would like to change it to read this. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Keith said, Uh, in a later interview, that God's love was indeed magnified through the cross, but God's chosen means to do that involved the blood of his son that satisfied God's wrath towards sin. We live all around us in a culture that this conversation of whether or not a blood sacrifice was needed or not doesn't even jump on the radar. 
Do you know why? Because them out there and we in here think we're not that dirty and we're not that bad. Let's be clear. It's not a them problem. It's an all of us problem. So let's hear what the scriptures have to say and what our hope this Advent is in Christ coming as our priest. There's a blue insert in your program that has our text. It's from selected passages in Hebrews chapter 10. Let me invite you to stand as we hear God's word this morning. We'll read verses 1 through 4, 11 through 14, and the 19 through 25. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Down to verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now to verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Beloved in Christ, this is God's word. It is absolutely true and it's given to us this day in love. Let's pray. Gracious Father, attune our hearts to the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of our high priest, Jesus. For no one else has offered to cleanse us of our sins. No one's loved us like that. No one has given their perfection for our mess like Jesus has. So this day, oh God, would we, be, um, would we be awestruck 
by the wonder and the majesty of our Savior and brother and Lord. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. I want to look at three things. So each portion of the text will have a different kind of main focus or main point or main idea. I want to look at the stain of sin. That'll be in verses 1 through 4. I want to look at the sacrifice of Christ. That's going to be in verses 11 through 14. And then I want to look at the standing that we have because of what Jesus has done. And that's going to be in verses 19 through 25. Let's talk, first of all, about stain, shall we? Quick poll. How many of you plan your outfits in the morning based on what you're going to have for dinner that night? You mean, um, folks, y'all don't have your spouse plan your outfit for you because you know, they know, and you know that there's going to be staining happening? And if you're eating something with red sauce in it, they plan a red shirt. That doesn't happen for you? Okay, first of all, obviously the story's not about me. <laughs> it is without fail that I stain myself all the time while eating. I don't know how it happens, but it does. My children have also inherited this uh, unique set of skills as well. Here are the things that have been made clear in Hebrews. God's people are stained with sin. You have to understand this before we can get into the text, okay? The stain of sin is not a, it's not a surface level stain. It goes all the way down. No amount of, uh, no amount of washing, no amount of scrubbing, no amount of good deeds, no amount of appeasement can remove it. It is a part of you. It's all the way down to your very soul, okay? There's a lot of things that the, the, the writer to the Hebrews has addressed. Up until this point, we're kind of jumping into the conversation here at verse, or at chapter 10. We were created in original goodness. A lot of us, when we, uh, when we think about, um, when we think about who we are as humanity, when we think about who we are as human beings, um, we ask, who are we or what are we? And if we were in Sunday school, we might say something like, we are sinners. The problem is, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 happened before Genesis 3. Before you were uh, found, your, before you found yourself in the lineage of Adam, in the corruption that comes, you were made in goodness. God saw the formation of you and I bearing the very image of God and said that it is very good. Sin has marred it. Sin has corrupted it to be sure, but beneath the corruption is still the goodness that we were created in the image of God. So that's the first thing. 
the stain of sin, which corrupts our every facet on this earth, is ever-present. And God has made a way for sin to be washed. The problem was, as we're going to discuss now, the symbolic action of sacrificing animals could not actually cleanse us of our sin and remove it. It was a type. It was a picture of a sacrifice to come, but it couldn't do it. So look at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. So that would be the law demanding sacrifices, right? It's, it's a picture demanding that sacrifice be made. There's this picture in the law that is but a shadow of the things that is to come. So some of you remember um, when the uh, solar eclipse happened last year. And unless you spent money to get very specific sunglasses, it was uh, medically ill-advised to try and stare at the sun during the eclipse. You know some Yahoo had to do it somewhere, burn their retina, So if you were going to look at the eclipse and you didn't have the special sunglasses, what were you going to do? You were going to figure out a way to look at the shadow. Now you could say that you witnessed the effects of the the eclipse, right? But could you say that you actually saw the eclipse? No. You saw a shadow of it. You saw the effects of it. But you didn't actually see the eclipse happen. Andy, after all, um, how many of you honestly are like, I saw a really cool shadow? That's not what you would want to remember. You'd want to remember the real thing. So in the same way, here's what's happening. In Leviticus, there was a blood sacrifice system that was put in place in order to deal with the stain of sin that was, uh, that was affecting all of God's people. The problem was it was a shadow. It was a type. It was a picture. It wasn't the thing that could actually take sin away. And you see that in verse 2. Actually, you see it in the latter part of verse 1. But these shadows, these forms of, tr- of reality, can never, by the same sacrifice that are continually offered, make perfect those who draw near. Okay? It cannot do it. It cannot make it um, effectual. So why? Why do it at all? Because it was a pointer. It was a marker. It was, a, it was, a, it was an indicator of what was to come. So it would ultimately be realized for us in Jesus. Look at verse 2. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. What he's saying there is, look, if these things were effective, if, if, if offering the blood of bulls and goats and unblemished lambs could actually cleanse you of sin in a meaningful and substantive way, it would have been once and done, and it would not have had to have been done anymore. But that isn't true, is it? Every year they had to go back. It was, it was not only a shadow, but it was a symbol without substance. Um, we're all familiar with uh, symbols that get repeated annually that bring little to no change, right? We're getting ready to turn another calendar year over to 2019. And as is the liturgy of our culture, we will at least give some passing thought to ways in which 2019 will be a different year, a better year than 2018 was for us. Now, um, there is nothing inherently um, changing about uh, the earth making it another lap around the sun, is there? 
When you wake up and wish each other a happy new year and January 1st and 2nd and 3rd comes in place, there's no change that's happened in you, right? No. Symbols and rites can point to change, but they themselves don't have the power to change you. You can resolve all you want to live a different year. But unless something changes inside of you, it's going to be the same you, the same habits, the same loves, the same passions. Nothing's going to be different. Likewise, the same sacrifices offered year after year after year after year could not change God's people because what they needed, how they needed to change was out of their grasp and out of their reach. Their very selves is what needed to be changed. If, if these sacrifices were sufficient, they would have stopped. And yet, and yet, the stain persisted. The stain persisted. Look at verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. There it was. Once again, just like yours and my resolutions, we come around once more to a reminder Things are different, yet very much the same. One more time around of a failure to be transformed and a failure of the system itself to do the transforming. Um, We experience this at a very real level. Some of us never feel adequate enough or put together enough and our good enough is never enough. And our failures are a testimony to to our own felt sense of failing. I've always had some issues with what you would call self-esteem, especially when I went through my uh, when I went through my acne phase. So I had a period in my life of about a year where I would just avoid looking at a mirror at all cost because I couldn't stand the reflection that looked back at me. It was a reminder of what I couldn't change. And the people of God, year after year after year, went through the same ritual, the same sacrifice, the same offerings with the same result. It doesn't change them. It, if nothing else, points to the ache and the longing of desire to be changed, perhaps. Look at verse 4. For it is impossible, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The intention of this system was a foreshadowing. It was a picture of what was to come, the provision that would be met in Jesus. But for now, the lesson that needed to be learned was that these things had a place, but they were insufficient. They could not do what needed to be done. And it was perilous to presume that they could do what needed to be done. It was perilous to presume that settling for good enough would be sufficient. Do you hear me? It is perilous to presume that settling for good enough is sufficient. It is to our own peril to presume that good enough is actually enough. So why would God, in a sense, prescribe an ineffective cure? Well, there's at least one answer. So that there would be no confusion when the actual cure came. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of 
um, eating food that's gone bad before. Especially that delightful experience of um, kind of still being sleepy-eyed and maybe you add half and half to your coffee or something like that. So you're not fully aware that what came out into your coffee was not supposed to be consumed by any human and then go to take that first sip of coffee, the greatest sip of the day, only to find out that maybe you should have stayed in bed. See, we know instinctively what bad food tastes like so we don't poison ourselves, right? We ought to be able to see that Jesus was the remedy. But here's the problem. That instinct isn't in us. Do you know why? Because what needed to change had to come from wholly outside of us. You can't save yourself. You can't, you don't have the capacity within you to see that something's killing you and that you need help. You actually need God to intervene and save you from yourself. And that's why year after year, the sacrifices could not save. They weren't designed to. These sacrifices were a question demanding an answer, a cry awaiting its comfort, a hunger awaiting the bread of life. How long, O Lord, was a cry on the lips of many a prophet. It was the collective longing of the covenant that was the shadow of the better things to come. These sacrifices could not do anything. So what did we need? We ultimately needed the sacrifice of Jesus. Look at me at verse 11. Verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is the hope, the hope that that through Christ and Only through Christ, we are clean. The priests of the former age were never able to sit down. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't sit down. It means symbolically, figuratively, they could never sit down because their job was never done. Ever. But the work that Jesus did, the work on the cross of being the priest himself and offering a sacrifice of, um, on behalf of God's people and offering himself as the great sacrifice for God's people was sufficient completely. The work was done so that when Jesus said it is finished, it was truly finished. So all of the priests who came before could never sit down, but Jesus finished the work and Jesus took his seat. The work of Christ was enough. And this is important because um, Hebrews was written, listen to what Hebrews was written to. Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who had never met Jesus before, who had been converted as a part of the ministry of the apostles because they had heard about Christ, but they were Jews. They were Jews by, um, by, by upbringing. They were Jews by birthright. And now, because of their conversion to Christianity, they are suffering enormous amounts of persecution. 
the persecution they experienced was horrific. And the question that became uh, important for them was, is all of this persecution worth it? Earlier this week, I sent out uh, an email to you. If you go to China Partnership, you can get um, as live as they can publish them updates about what's happening with Early Rain uh, Covenant Church in China. As of last night, when I saw um, when I saw what was kind of happening um, Sunday morning for them, they're asleep now. But what was happening Sunday morning? There were uh, armed police outside of the homes of members of Early Rain Church to make sure that they could not leave their home to gather together to worship, okay? There are elders and pastors that are being marched away, imprisoned without due process because they have proclaimed the name of Jesus, You have to understand, beloved, that the level of persecution that they are facing and could potentially face is unlike anything that has been seen in mainland China in recent memory or history. What was happening here in Hebrews was the level of persecution that they were facing was of the level that it made them say, is this worth it? Should we not just go back? Is it worth losing our homes? Is it worth losing our families? Is it worth losing our very lives? And this is why it was written. And look at what they say. It was written to warn of the peril of rather than trusting in the complete and sufficient work of Christ, to warn of what would happen about if you tried to go back to an old way of being that was no salvation at all. They were receiving persecution, real and brutal, from both the Jews and from Rome. Why would you do that? Why would you subject yourself to that? Why would you go, uh, why would you go back to what can never take away sins? That was the question in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The author of the Hebrews is saying, why would you go back to something that can't actually bring for you life? It can't actually save you. It can't actually make you clean. There is no going back because there was no life there to begin with. It's foolishness to go back, no matter the experiences of this world and the hardships that are being faced. Beloved, do you understand? It's hard on the one hand to feel the gravity of this because we're not experiencing persecution like that. We're not experiencing hardship like that. We're not experiencing anything that would say, follow Jesus and live but you might die before you live. You know what I'm saying? We're not, we're not there. We're not experiencing that. 
But when we think about the cost of discipleship, what it means to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, what do these verses actually assure us of? These verses assure us of this, that in Christ, we don't have a religion, a club, a ritual, but we actually have salvation in him. We have in him a spiritual reality and a power. We have in him not warm sentiments, not a co-pilot, not an administrative assistant, but the actual forgiveness of our sins and the recovery of our humanity. We have in him a high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for us. We don't have self-help, but the forgiveness of sins and favor before our God and power for holiness. Jesus has done all of this for his people. And there is nothing outside of him, nothing this world has or could offer that can bring you that. Because Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There is no other source. There is no other place. There is no other hope to make you clean. Do you see this? There is no life apart from him. Jesus has done what no earthly gain or success, pleasure or triumph could ever do. Jesus has removed our stain and become our sacrifice. He has reconciled heaven and earth, maker and creation, father and children. In that great hymn that we'll sing sometimes, Arise, my soul, arise, there's the line that declares this, My God has reconciled his pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Arise, arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears and rise. This is what Jesus has done. This is what the sweet, innocent babe in the manger came to do. He, the high priest, he, the sacrifice, he, the unblemished lamb, he, the one that would go and bleed and die on a cross so that you and I could live, so that whether we are in China facing persecution and the loss of our life, whether we are here all around us finding ourselves to be more and more irrelevant in a world that no longer philosophically cares what the church has to say, we know this, that our inheritance and our our assurance is perfect and rooted in Jesus. So then what is the standing that we enjoy? Verse 19. The final point of this is the so what point. Um, we can't be clean. Bulls and goats can't do it. Our own idols can't do it. Jesus did it and finished it. Now what? A couple things. First of all, we have access. We have access. What does that mean? Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to enter the holy places. This is a tremendous matter-of-fact statement, right? This is the, by the way, all this is done, we have confidence now just to stroll on in to the most holy of places. You know the holy of holies. It's the one that was separated by the heavy curtain that when Jesus was hung upon the cross and he said, it's finished. And he said, into your hands, O Father, I commit my spirit. And Jesus breathed out his last and gave up his spirit. That's when the, the, the thunder 
the thunder rolled and the earth shook and the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, now rending the, the, the separation between God and man. And the Holy of Holies was now open for all of God's people to enter through. Through what? Through Jesus. Believers now walk, as it were, through the torn curtain of Jesus into the presence of the Father. And we do so with great confidence, not once in a while, not once a year, not if we're really good enough. We can walk in whenever we need to, whenever we desire to, when we have access, immediate access before the God who holds the very universe together by a single spoken word. Not only do we have access, but we have an advocate. So look with me at verse... um, Verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, since we have a great priest over the house of God. So you have to understand um, that in the Old Testament, uh, Aaron's, uh, the priest in the Aaronic priesthood, they wore on their breastplate 12 stones, Right? The 12 stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And so as they would go in and as they would engage in their priestly service, as they would go in and make offering on behalf of the people of God, the people of God would always be on their heart. Jesus, our great high priest, now intercedes for us, advocates for us daily, Moment by moment, before the Father, our names are written on his hands, our names, beloved. We are the ones that the Father gave to the Son to secure for his own sheep pen, and not a single one that Jesus gave his life for will ever be lost. We are at the very center of his being, for we are in him. He is our advocate. When John Chrysostom was brought before the Roman emperor, the emperor threatened him with banishment if he remained a Christian. And this is how Chrysostom replied. You cannot banish me from this world, for this world is my father's house. But I will slay you, said the emperor. No, you can't, said the noble champion of the faith, for my life is hid with Christ and God. The emperor says, I'll take away your treasures. No, but you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. Emperor says, but I will drive you away from man and you shall have no friend left. Chrysostom says, no, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to hurt me. Because of our confidence in our access And the advocacy that we have in Jesus, we can draw near to God. Dear friends, what an amazing truth this is. Verse 22, let us then draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Can I tell you just really quickly, I've been thinking a lot about this this particular verse of this particular sermon. And I think if I was going to be incredibly reductionistic, I think there's two reasons why we don't draw near with a clean conscience and the full access that we enjoy, right? There's two possible uh, answers, broadly speaking, highly reductionistic. Option one is that we don't believe that we have access. 
Option two is that we don't want that level of access. We think we're fine with good enough. See, I think some of you, I think some of you struggle with belief that believes that you've actually been sprinkled uh, with the blood of Christ and that you're clean and that you have forgiveness of sins. You are presently forgiven. Your future sins are forgiven. That your standing before God is certain because of the resurrection of Jesus. But my fear is, friends, that some of us, myself included, moment by moment, live not um, with a ignorance of this. It, we live with a lack of desire for this. It's not that we don't believe that we have access. It's that we don't care that we have access because something else is more beautiful and believable at that moment. I think that's the rub, isn't it? It's not that we don't believe, it's just that we don't care. And so maybe, maybe this morning, one of our prayers ought to be, God, why don't I care that I have access to you and that I have everything that I need for life and godliness and happiness and joy in you? confession of our hope verse 23 and following is that Jesus has done something for us and our faith is not in precepts or principles but the act of a person Jesus let me conclude with this Um, his given name was Richard Xavier Francis Manning. It was a it was a good it was a good Irish Catholic name. I mean, it had all the bases covered. While growing up, his best friend was Ray. The two of them did everything together. They went to school together. They bought a car together as teenagers. They double dated. They even enlisted in the army together. They went to boot camp together. And they fought together on the front lines in the Korean War. One night, while sitting in a foxhole, Ray was, uh, um, Richard rather, was reminiscing about the old days in Brooklyn while Ray listened and ate a chocolate bar. Suddenly, a live grenade came into the trench. And Ray looked at Richard, smiled, dropped his chocolate bar, and threw himself on top of the live grenade. It exploded, killing Ray, but Richard's life was saved. So when Richard became a priest, he was instructed to take on the name of a saint. He thought about his friend, Ray Brennan, and so he took on the name Brennan Manning. Some of you have read Brennan Manning's book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, It's a profound work. One day, Brennan was, um, years later, he was at Ray's mother's house in Brooklyn, and they sat up late one night having tea when Brennan asked her, do you think that Ray loved me? And as he tells the story, Mrs. Brennan got up off the couch, shook her finger in front of Brennan's face and shouted, what more could he have done for you? 
Brennan said at that moment he experienced an epiphany. He imagined himself standing before the cross of Jesus wondering, does God really love me? And Jesus' mother, Mary, pointing to her son, saying, what more could he have done for you? Dear friends, Jesus, as priest, came to make us clean. But not only did he come to make us clean, he came to give us access and an advocate to the Father. And this is an access that if you are a believer in Jesus, that you have right now, you have access before the throne of grace to the true and living hope that is the God of the universe knows you by name and not just because he was introduced to you, but because he loves you and gave his son to die for you. And so as our brothers and sisters in China are right now facing imprisonment, persecution, and potentially the loss of their life, they're spurred on by this fact. You can't take from me what I have in Jesus. As you and I face uncertainty, loss, longing, desires that are not quenched by this world, beloved, look at Jesus Look at the cross and see him. See what the Son of God has done for you and see what God himself has given to you. And then ask yourself, does God really love me? What more could he have done for you?